Anesthesia looks like disorders of consciousness, like the actually unconscious patients with disorders of consciousness, and both of them are the opposite of LSE or tetanus. Greetings, my good humans, and welcome to Lefteris Ask Science edition number 27. My name is Lefteris, and I like bothering academics and asking them questions until I understand what, how, and why they do what they do. This week, you can ignore my cat in the background, but I'm talking with Andrea Lupi, a PhD candidate from the University of Cambridge that studies cognitive science, in the lab of Dr. Emmanuel Stamatakis. In this edition of the podcast, we answer questions like, what is consciousness? How can we detect it? And how can psychedelics be used in order to understand consciousness? Once again, I took questions from you in the preparation for this interview, and it helped out a lot. If you are listening to this podcast and you would like to be notified earlier about the guests and get to ask questions for the topics that they are studying, head over on Facebook and look for Lefteris Ask Science Group. Additionally, you can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok under the name Lefteris underscore asks. Also, in the show notes, you'll find links to subscribe to the weekly science newsletter and ways you can support me in doing this by donating. Let's now meet Andrea Lupi. Um, my name is Andrea Lupi. I'm from Italy, but I'm currently pursuing a PhD in the United Kingdom, in the University of Cambridge, and I work in the Division of Anesthesia um, on Network Neuroscience of Consciousness. Andrea Lupi has a unique perspective on the topic of consciousness, since he has been studying this topic from different angles. He wanted to understand the human consciousness and started from the philosophy and psychology angle until he reached the decision of following neuroscience to understand how the brain works. For a very long time, I've been interested in understanding consciousness. Um, but at first, I studied that from philosophy, which was... The, the main topic of my undergraduate. And then I was also studying psychology at the same time, and I started to realize that actually neuroscience, understanding the brain, is key to understanding the mind and, and consciousness. Um, and so I've, I've started to refine this, this uh, particular interest of mine, and what we currently study in, in my... Um, in the lab, which is the Cognition and Consciousness Imaging Group, specifically in Cambridge, is mostly um, anesthesia and disorders of consciousness. So either volunteers who are being anesthetized so that we can understand what's happening in their brains while they lose consciousness, um, because that allows us to, to, to study loss of consciousness in a very controlled way, so scientifically rigorous and experimentally, experimentally sound. But we also study a number of patients who suffer from chronic disorders of consciousness. So these are patients who have had some stroke, for instance, or some kind of traumatic brain injury. And a small proportion of those who do will um, lose consciousness and they will not recover it. So they will become uh, chronically, permanently unconscious. And there are some differences in how severe this can be. But we think that this is very important to study both for the sake of, of the patients, but also because it gives us a different kind of window into what makes a brain conscious. Um, all of us lose consciousness every day when we go to sleep. And then some, some of us lose consciousness 
in a controlled manner when we need to have surgery, which is anesthesia, which is arguably one of the greatest medical advances ever. Um, but both of these are reversible. You naturally wake up from sleep after a certain time and you wake up from anesthesia after the surgery is over. And instead, patients with disorders of consciousness, which sometimes I'm going to abbreviate as DOC for, for simplicity, uh, they do not recover consciousness. Some of them might, some of them might recover some function, but most of them do not. And the question is, why? Of course, they have different kinds of, of brain damage, and the hope is that one day we might be able to find the right kind of pharmacological treatment or the right kind of intervention to help them towards recovering consciousness. And so studying these very two different ways of losing consciousness might help us to pinpoint on what is specific about consciousness as opposed to, say, specific about this particular anesthetic. Because, of course, we have studied um, I've mentioned that we study anesthesia, but there are many different kinds of anesthetics, and we know that some of them act on very different molecular pathways than others, yet they all produce unconsciousness. And there is a question of what is it that is specific to consciousness versus what is it that is just about some other aspect of this anesthetic. So this was a fairly long-winded answer, I'll, I'll, I'll admit, but um, it, it's because it is a two-part answer. The first part is, yes, I've been interested in consciousness for a long time and progressively going from philosophy to neuroscience and specifically to these kinds of loss of consciousness. There are different ways of, of studying consciousness as well, and I, I would be not really talking about those. And the perspective that we take is that if brains can be said to have any function, one way to describe that is to integrate information. Brains are effectively large networks made of smaller networks, which is, you know, neurons connected through synapses and then assembled into larger group of networks. And what are they doing? Fundamentally, what they are doing is they are exchanging information to each other so that the organism will be able to behave successfully in the environment. That is, in a nutshell, one way, not the only way, but one way that you can and so we study, we, we, we're lucky because in the last century there has been a lot of progress, in, in fact, even in the last decades, on the mathematics of networks, which is called graph theory. And in the last less than 20 years, I'd say very more than 10, what we have been able to do is we have been able, we as, as a collective endeavor of all neuroscientists, have been able to take this mathematics of graph theory and apply it to the kinds of data that we have from, say, functional MRI. So studying the brain as a network using the formal tools of neuroscience. And I think this is, this is really cool, which is why I decided to join this particular lab that was taking this approach. Neuroscience is the study of your nervous system. Your nervous system controls your actions, your senses, and transmits signals from all over your body. A person studying one discipline couldn't have enough bandwidth in order to study the nervous system from all possible angles. So neuroscience is by its nature a very interdisciplinary field of study. And that makes it very interesting to work in and has added benefits which wouldn't be there if people from so many different aspects of science and technology weren't there in the first place. One of the great things about neuroscience in general, I, I, I must say, is that it is so interdisciplinary. 
because you need people who understand single neurons and take a molecular approach even, but you also have people who, who come from genetics and then you have people who work at the opposite end of the spectrum, like, like myself, who look at whole brains. And there is not just, you know, so you have philosophers, but you also have psychologists, which is the other side of my previous training. But you also have a lot of these advances, the ones, for instance, the study of networks that I was mentioning, were driven by physicists and engineers and mathematicians coming into neuroscience and, and developing tools and bringing tools from their own discipline of origin into this collective endeavor of studying how brains work. And, and there is a lot more that I haven't even, even mentioned. And there's probably even a lot more that I don't even know about yet because those branches of neuroscience are just so different from my own. But I, I think this is probably my favorite thing about neuroscience, that it, it just takes everybody's efforts together to even make progress. And, and, and that's amazing. And I get to talk with very interesting people a lot of the time. And I have to say, this, this, you know, in, in the last few years, there has also been this interesting development of, um, you know, a lot of artificial intelligence, machine learning becoming more, more prominent. Um, and that doesn't just mean we get to use more advanced tools, which we are, and a lot of us are, but also there has been increasing interest from the side of people who work on artificial intelligence in trying to understand what insights can we take from the brain? How can the specific way that the human brain is intelligent inform the way that we might want to create, um, to build rather, uh, machines that have some degree of intelligence? And with the additional question of, is intelligence the only thing we care about? Um, so there are some people studying whether there should be or whether it would be a good idea to have artificial consciousness, etc. Um, so it, it is a, I, I, I like to use this term of, of a virtuous cycle. Um, it's not a term that I, that I coined, but it's, it's one that I really like. And I think there is some merit to it because just all of this interdisciplinarity is not just going everything into neuroscience, but it's also neuroscience informing the ways that we can then, um, you know, for instance, develop these, these new tools, develop these new ways of even looking at the world. Now that we have a slightly better understanding of how scientists study the brain, let's go to the more specific work of Mr. Luppi and how does he study the brain in order to figure out consciousness. Is the work simply trying to understand which part of the brain plays an important role in us being conscious? It's right what you said, that there are some, um, some parts of the brain that seem to be more involved with consciousness than others. Um, and some of our previous work um, was about finding what those parts might be, and we found some of them. Um, and, and there has been since um, a lot more research that has, has largely found the same parts of, of the brain. At the same time, so what we were finding is uh, a set of regions in the brain that seem to um, become less uh, connected and less active, both when you lose consciousness as a result of anesthesia and when you lose consciousness as a result of brain injuries in these patients with disorders of consciousness. And that I think is, is very interesting. Um, and we, we, we are now pursuing that, that further with some more mechanistic uh, attempts to understand what exactly is making that region turn on or off. At the same time, 
there is also the question of, as I was mentioning earlier, the brain is a network. So you need to consider everything together um, in order to really understand what is going on. Because those regions, even though some of them might play a more important role than others for some specific aspects of, of consciousness, there is the question of how are they performing that role? And they are performing their role by being part of a network and influencing the way that the network works. And so this is the approach that we are taking more recently, where we don't focus on, on specific regions, but rather we focus on precisely on the brain as a whole. So on different kinds of networks that you can find, that you can identify when you look at the brain and trying to understand how they um, influence the way that consciousness works. It, it's that, I, I, I very much want to emphasize that these are not opposite perspectives. We're not saying looking at regions is, is a bad idea. We, we've done it and we think that, and we're, we continue to do it. What we're saying is these are two complementary ways of looking at the brain. Each of them is going to tell you something, but each of them might miss out on part of the story. And in order to try and get the full story, which is what we care about, we pursue both of them, sometimes together, sometimes in parallel. In previous editions of the podcast, we discussed different ways we can study the brain that has this very persistent property of being inside your skull, which makes it very hard to study. For this work, Andrea Lupi used functional MRI that detects brain activities that are associated with blood flow. Knowing now that Mr. Lupi wanted to see the whole brain activity and not just specific parts of it, I was wondering if there are trade-offs between using the technique or any other technique that measures brain activity. That's a very fair question. So, and, and just to, to take a step back, we, as neuroscientists, we can look at the brain at very different scales. And typically there is this trade-off in both spatial resolution um, and temporal resolution. Um, here, of course, when it comes to human neuroimaging, we are more limited than with the kind of works that we can do in other species. Um, and we still have many techniques at our disposal. The one that we use is called a functional MRI. And that gives us a reasonably good spatial resolution. And when I say reasonably good, it should be prefaced with reasonably good for human work, um, which is at the level um, of a few millimeters. Um, so little cubes of, say, two by two by two millimeters, um, which is, you know, pretty good for for human neuroimaging. Um, the downside of that is that we have a slower temporal resolution of about two seconds. And that differs from other techniques like EEG, which is the most common one, or MEG, which is magnetic rather than electroencephalography which have less good spatial resolution, but a much better temporal resolution at the level of, of milliseconds. And our interest here is on the spatial aspect um, because we want to be able to image everything that is going on. 
and in particular EEG doesn't have the best uh, resolution for um, subcortical regions. So the brain is, is divided into the cortex and then there is the subcortex which is more towards the middle um, and as a result because our interests um, we know that consciousness also relies on, on, on some key subcortical structures. When these data were acquired, they were acquired with the idea that we might want to look at those two. And as a result, we have functional MRI data instead, um, which is also easier to relate to the other kind of data that we use, um, which is diffusion MRI, which um, is slightly different because functional MRI, as, as the name suggests, lets us see what is going on in the brain in terms of which regions become more or less active at any particular point in time. Diffusion MRI lets us instead see which regions are connected to which other regions on a structural perspective. So effectively, which regions have physical connections with each other. And the work of, of this particular paper is putting those two together. I'm sure some, some of you might have read articles in the news or in the newsletter, which you can subscribe to it in the description of the show, that many neuroscientists study the brain of animals before moving to the bigger, more complex brains of humans. I was wondering what was the reasoning behind Mr. Lupi's work with human brains and if it was just a case of, well, I'm human, it's more interesting to test humans. Most of this you could do with um, mice as well or monkeys as well. In, in fact, I was recently at a conference where they were using similar techniques to study humans, macaques and, um, and rats in their case rather than mice. Um, and because we, we now have some tools for doing that and, and that is very cool. And in, in, in some of the other work that we do, we actually do compare humans and macaques. Um, that is not work related to, to consciousness, but there are people who are studying consciousness with functional MRI in macaques um, because there are you know, advantages in terms of, of the kind of resolution and the kind of um, experiments that you can run. I have never worked with, with mice myself, so my, my interest has always been primarily in, in humans. Um, that being said, I think there is also the question of not just I'm interested in humans because I happen to be a human, but I'm interested in humans also because we can ask more specific questions of humans. So especially when it comes to studying consciousness, that relies on people being able to tell you what they experience, being able to tell you, no, while I was anesthetized, I did not have any experiences whatsoever. Or in the case of patients, for instance, um, they are typically diagnosed as being as having a disorder of consciousness because they are unresponsive. You ask them to squeeze your hand, well, the, the physician, not, not me, will ask them to squeeze their hand or to make some kind of movement, and these patients will not. And this is similar to what happens when you become anesthetized, which is that they check whether you're still awake by talking to you and asking you, can you move your hand, can you squeeze my hand, and if you don't, and so it's that you must be unconscious. But there is a distinction conceptually between loss of consciousness and loss of responsiveness. Sometimes you are 
conscious, but you do not respond. For instance, you could choose not to respond. We don't think that that is actually what is happening in any of those cases, but in theory, perhaps you could. But importantly, there are a subset of patients with disorders of consciousness who do not respond when you ask them to perform a behavior, like squeeze my hand. But some, some researchers uh, who at the time were, were in Cambridge, in fact, in 2006, were able to use functional MRI to show that if you ask them to imagine performing a response, to imagine, for instance, playing tennis, is the famous example, or imagine moving around their own homes in response to a command that the patients could do. Even though just by looking at them, you would not see any motion, by looking at their brains, you would see that they were actually trying to perform the task because the cur- we know that these kinds of tasks recruit very specific regions that are involved in different kinds of respectively motor control and navigation. And those regions were becoming active in a way that is similar to when healthy people perform the same task. And so that, that let us dissociate the possibility of overt consciousness and covert consciousness. And that is effectively not something that I think would be possible with, with um, animals, non-human animals, at least not in the foreseeable future. I mean, maybe tomorrow someone will, will come up with a paradigm to do that and, and, and I'll be proven wrong. And I hope they do, because we definitely need more models of that. But I think for now, given that consciousness is the, the ability of obtaining subjective reports is only possible in, in humans, I think that makes a, a, an interesting case for um, studying humans specifically, even if one weren't a priori interested in humans. When I initially started to read Mr. Lupi's work, I found myself having unknown terms quite fast. Even from the abstract of the paper, there was this term called human connectome, which, to put it coarsely, is a physical map of the brain. The, the, the point of this paper is to use a different kind of decomposition of brain activity. You, you can look at brain activity in many different ways, and typically the way that people look at it is what region is active at what time. So it's, it's, a, it's in a, if you will, regions by time set of, of, of coordinates. And instead, here we want to take a slightly different perspective, which is a spatial frequency by time. And, you know, what, what is a spatial frequency? You can think of it as asking the question, which regions are talking to which other regions. And sometimes you will have very large scale patterns. So for instance, left hemisphere and right hemisphere. That is, you can think of it as a very smooth pattern because if you were to depict that, it would be you know, just one very coarse grained one entire hemisphere and then the other. Or it could be the front and the bottom of the brain. Um, on the other hand, you can have very fine-grained aspects of communication whereby each single little blob of, of gray matter talks to many others that are not contiguous to it. And this repeats throughout, so you have a very fine-grained pattern of different regions talking to each other. And this is a different way of looking 
fundamentally added because instead of focusing on individual regions one at a time, we are focusing on different sets of regions and how we are grouping them together. And we obtain this particular way of looking at the brain by decomposing the, the brain activity in terms of what we call the human connectome. So the human connectome is the, if you will, wiring diagram of the brain. Which regions of the brain are physically connected to each other? And that is what we obtained from diffusion MRI, which I was describing earlier. And the nice thing about it is that we can obtain it in humans because this is MRI, so it's non-invasive. And as a result of that, we obtain this network. Effectively, the human connectome is a network. And we can then apply what is called harmonic mode decomposition to obtain these particular patterns. So this is what gives us these various patterns of very smooth or very fine-grained sets of connectivity. And since, since your background is, is in acoustics, you probably will be familiar with the Fourier transform. And the Fourier transform is based on the same principle. The Fourier transform takes a signal that is in the time domain and turns the same signal into the frequency domain. And it's, it doesn't, it's a lossless kind of transformation because you're literally just viewing the same signal in a different way. Um, and formally, what the Fourier transform does is it represents your signal as a combination of sinusoids of different temporal frequencies. And sinusoids are effectively harmonic modes. In particular, they are the harmonic modes of a one-dimensional domain with cyclic boundary conditions, which is a very fancy way to talk about a ring. The harmonic modes of a ring are sinusoids, and sinusoids of different temporal frequencies are what you use to decompose your signal. What we do for the brain is the same idea, but instead of using a ring as our domain, we use the structural connectome of the human brain, because we think that decomposing a brain, decomposing brain activity in terms of brain structure, sounds like a very sensible thing to do for us. It's, it's in some sense, we want to say it's the, the natural thing to do. And so in this case, the frequencies are not temporal frequencies anymore, as with the Fourier domain, but rather they are spatial frequencies, which means how fine-grained or coarse-grained they are. To further understand more about the experiments that they did, I asked how did they manage to extract the human connectum from their subjects and what exactly was the comparison that they tried to do. So the connectum we do not get from our specific subjects. We could uh, if, if we had collected those data. For, for some patients we actually do. But what we want is something that is as generalizable across people as possible. So instead, what the, connect, the specific connectome that we use is the same for everybody in our study. And it's obtained from a thousand people, nearly a thousand people from the Human Connectome Project, which is a very well-established data set that has very high-quality data. And so we say that this is, you can think of it as a template for the healthy human connectome in general, rather than being specific to an individual which would be a different way of doing this analysis, but would, would be 
answering slightly different questions. And so, yes, the, the, the groups of, of individuals that we study in this, um, for this analysis include some patients with disorders of consciousness, around 20 of them, then around 15 individuals who are undergoing different levels of anesthesia from just mild sedation, when you're a little bit groggy, but you can still respond, to actual loss of responsiveness, and then recovery. But we also looked at the other side of the story, um, which is to say most of our work, as I've been mentioning, is on anesthesia and disorders of consciousness. But we're also very interested in what happens when you change consciousness without suppressing it. Because, of course, anesthesia and disorders of consciousness, in, in particular, if you focus on anesthesia, when that works, the person becomes unconscious, which means that they do not have any particular experiences um, and they cannot tell you what's going on because nothing is going on. However, there are ways that you can perturb consciousness and obtain what is called an altered state of consciousness without necessarily making people unconscious, which means that they still have experiences that they can tell you about. And in particular, you can do this in, in, in many different ways, but one, one that is becoming increasingly interesting for neuroscientists to study is psychedelics, like LSD. And another, another drug with similar effects is ketamine, which I think is particularly interesting because at high doses, it's an anesthetic. But at low doses, which is what we used here, sub-anesthetic doses, it can have psychedelic-like um, subjective effects. And so that is what we study. We try to look on one hand, anesthesia and disorders of consciousness, so loss of consciousness. And on the other hand, we look at sub-anesthetic, so psychedelic, inverted quotes, ketamine, and LSD. And we're trying to see, are they similar or are they different? And is anesthesia similar or different to disorders of consciousness? And we carry those four states of consciousness forward in parallel in this, in this study. Now that we more or less are following the four different states of consciousness that Mr. Lupi was studying from the data he had, let's go to the results of this work. And what did he learn from trying to correlate the human connectome with the four different states of consciousness? I will start with the LSD research because um, there was actually some previous, a, a previous study by our collaborators showing that um, using the same analysis, so this connectome harmonic decomposition, as we call it, um, showing that you can find very similar patterns in both the brains of someone who is undergoing the LSD experience and of someone who is undergoing the psychedelic experience caused by psilocybin which is a different classic psychedelic, but with very similar molecular mechanisms. And so that, that gave us confidence that this, this way of looking at the brain, connectome harmonic decomposition, might be capturing something of what's happening in the mind when the brain is undergoing particular states that are subjectively similar to each other. And so our, the first question that we had was, is this going to be similar when it comes to ketamine? Because ketamine does produce some similar experiences, but not exactly the same. 
and its molecular mechanisms are completely different, which we think is quite interesting. And the answer to that is mostly yes. So mostly ketamine and LSD produce very similar pattern, harmonic patterns, as we call them in in the brain. Not exactly identical. There are some important differences as well, but there is a, a, a key similarity there that you can see. On the other hand, we also find that anesthesia and disorders of consciousness look like each other, which we think is, is, is very interesting because partly we had shown that they should with uh, a different empirical work that was previously done focusing on which regions support consciousness. Um, but this is giving us a different way of looking at it. And also in this different way, we find that anesthesia and disorders of consciousness look like each other. But the, the really interesting thing um, that we find is that they look the opposite of psychedelics. So they, they have both anesthesia, both, I'm, I'm going to refer collectively to anesthesia and disorders of consciousness as loss of consciousness or unconsciousness just for, for brevity. And I'll, I'll, I'll refer to ketamine and LSD as the psychedelics um, for brevity. And we find that, that unconsciousness and the psychedelic states have opposite signatures in, when viewed in this particular way, which I think is, is, is quite um, quite interesting. And we, we dug a little deeper into the unconsciousness part in particular, because as I mentioned, um, we have different levels of sedation. And so what we were able to find is that this signature that we find is not just about having an anesthetic in your bloodstream. Because it is found even when we compare sedation to actual loss of consciousness, or when we compare loss of consciousness with recovery. Which is interesting because during at recovery, people, as the name suggests, have recovered consciousness, but there is still residual drug in their system. And if, so even though you might have this residual drug in your system, still you will not exhibit that signature. That signature is only specific to when you're actually unconscious, and it, can, it goes away when you recover consciousness. On the other hand, I was mentioning earlier that there are a subset of DOC patients who, from an outside view, do not look conscious because they cannot respond to your commands. But if you happen to have a brain scanner, you know, then you might be able to actually see that they can perform some tasks like this tennis task when you are asking them and, and then looking at their brains rather than looking at their overt behavior. And, and we were lucky that for all of our DOC patients that we scanned here, we also had this additional information because they had been previously tested with this paradigm. And so we were able to find two groups of, of patients. Uh, about eight of our patients had been able to perform either the tennis or the navigation task. And so we call them covertly conscious patients because we have evidence that actually they might be aware of it. And when we compare these two groups of patients, we find the same signature, which is to say that the signature of consciousness that we have does not just track the presence of a brain damage. It tracks the presence of a brain damage that makes you unconscious. One of the fascinating things was the research on the patients that have problems of consciousness. 
There were some people that even though they were unconscious, when they were asked to mimic playing tennis for example, their brain patterns changed as if they were playing tennis, which showed that they had at least some level of covert consciousness. However, their connectome was different from other patients with disorders of consciousness. And a short summary of their overall findings is very well expressed by Andrea Lupi here. Anesthesia looks like disorders of consciousness, like the actually unconscious patients with disorders of consciousness, and both of them are the opposite of LSE or tetanus. So, having that in mind, I was wondering if the potential application of this knowledge could be a drug for these patients. The answer is uh, maybe yes, but with many, many, many asterisks. One of our co-authors who on, on this paper, Dr. Robin Carroll Harris from Imperial College in London, um, he and some colleagues actually have uh, a paper proposing that it might be uh, an interesting avenue to explore to use psychedelics to um, to try and help patients with disorders of consciousness. Um, and some of the and this these results at least seem to be consistent with that. That being said, the asterisks that you were mentioning earlier, uh, there are indeed many of them because, you know, psychedelic research, is, it, it's increasing, which is very good to see. But of course, there are still a lot of ethical, um, um, obtaining ethical approval is not trivial. And likewise, studying patients with disorders of consciousness um, requires substantial ethical um uh, scrutiny so that we can make sure that the, the welfare of the patients of course all of this is done with the welfare of the patients as the goal um but it is it is not um you know it, it is not trivial to do and either and combining those two is is particularly um, complicated especially because you know those patients cannot themselves give consent to this procedure, so consent has to be sought from their legal representatives. And uh, in fact, the same the same authors also wrote another paper that was specifically addressing the, the, some of the ethical challenges of trying psychedelic research with disorders of consciousness. So it's a complicated, very complicated issue. Um, our data are at least consistent with this possibility, but there is a lot more that needs to be done before any of this can be actually put into into practice, which is as it should be. An interesting consideration when it comes to researching the brain is understanding where consciousness is coming from. Like, is there a threshold of brain activity, or are there specific parts of the brain that need to be active? I wasn't expecting a straight answer to this, but Mr. Lupi is the appropriate person to ask about it. I think there are some different ways that I don't have an answer to that. Um, so part of it is that, you know, there are studies that are taking large numbers of unconscious people and then they are using, for instance, machine learning to try and find, okay, what is the point, the cutoff, where we see that we can best discriminate between conscious and unconscious people. Now, that, that could be a way to find a particular threshold, and you could even make it so that you're only considering whether a priori or data-driven specific regions. Um, that, that is more of an experimental question. 
as in a question about specific data, then it is a question about how does consciousness work in a brain. That, that being said, there is some very, um, very powerful research that is coming out of the University of Milan in Italy, um, where there are some, some researchers, mostly led by Marcello Massimini and his collaborators, and they are using what, 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 um, what is called a, what they call the ZAP and ZIP procedure, which is you have you start with an EEG. Uh, so a person whose who's EEG activity is being recorded. And then you apply a magnetic pulse to their brain from with transcranial magnetic stimulation, which is safe and non-invasive, but it will, for a very brief moment, produce a, a, a disruption of brain activity in a particular region. And what they do is they measure what this disruption looks like in the brain, how it propagates across the brain. And when they do that, this was the zap part, so that the, the magnetic pulse is the zap part. And then the zip part is they look at what is called the lempel zip complexity of the resulting activity, which is basically the zip algorithm they use to compress your files on your computer. So, you know, lempel zip complexity sounds, sounds very complicated, but in fact, it is the same thing. You're just trying to obtain a compressed representation of what's going on. And the answer turns out to be that the more compressed the representation is, so that the less information there is there, the more likely the person is to be unconscious. And this, the, the, this research actually seems to be suggesting a particular threshold um, at which you can pretty accurately discriminate between people being conscious and people being unconscious. Now, of course, the brain itself is not zapping and then zipping its own activity. This is a way to read out something about the brain from the outside. But this suggests that there might be something going on that needs particular amounts of, say, activity or connectivity in order to work properly. It, it is a summary measure um, that, that, that we have, and we still need to understand what is actually giving rise to it. There may be different mechanisms because in some cases, it might be a lack of physical connections if the person has had a, a physical brain injury. In other cases, the physical connections might be there, but there might be an anesthetic that prevents them from working properly. But nonetheless, we can have reasonable summary measures of what's going on in the brain. And the question is understanding mechanistically what's happening here. One more question about consciousness that came from you in the Lefteris Ask Science Facebook group had to do with other types of consciousness. How can we tell if animals are conscious, for example? At which point an AI stops being an algorithm and develops consciousness? That is a hard question. And um, so my answer is, is, is going to be, again, sort of a, a two-part answer, I'm going to say. So part of it is there is already research that is looking at what happens in the brain of a macaque or even the brain of a rat when it becomes anesthetized. As I mentioned, we can't really get subjective reports from them. The macaque can't tell you, yes, I was dreaming of a banana. They can't. Um, however, we see that many of the things that we observe in a human brain when a human becomes unconscious during an anesthesia are also observed in a macaque brain when the macaque becomes anesthetized with the same drug. So we think that that might suggest 
that um, there is something that it is like to be a uh, becoming unconscious in the sense it relies on the idea that pretty much I, I, I don't know what anybody else's experience is but I, I assume that other humans also have subjective experiences that are similar to mine and part of that argument relies on their having the same kind of brain structure as I have, the, the same kind of brain architecture. And macaque brain architecture is not identical to the human one, but it has some very important similarities. And so the idea behind this is to say, you anesthetize a macaque and you anesthetize a human, and you see many of the same things happening, and you know that in humans this corresponds to loss of consciousness. You might make a reasonable assumption that it also corresponds to loss of consciousness in a macaque. Whether or not that assumption actually you know, turns out to be true in some sense is a different question. And of course, same, same for the rat. But I think it does suggest there are some important underlying similarities between, between those, even when it comes to the study of consciousness. Um, so that, that being said, uh, of course, you can't really anesthetize a computer. It's, I, I don't have a, 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 an understanding of what that would be like, um, what that would require. Um, however, there are, fortunately, there are a number of different theories of, of consciousness, and some of them are not specific about brains. So some of them are. Some of them talk about this specific brain region, and it, it has to be about this specific brain region. Others are a bit more general. And so they talk about the kind of architecture that a system would need to have in order to be the kind of thing that conscious. And in particular, some of them talk about the kinds of information that go on in a system. And they say that one of them in particular, which is called integrated information theory, says that you need to have this integrated information. Consciousness is integrated information and if a system has integrated information, then by definition, they say it is also conscious. And they don't just postulate this, they, they have a number of, of reasons for, for, for saying this. And I should very much emphasize this is by far not the only theory of consciousness, um, but it is, it is one of them. And, and because, and, and, and it's one of those that we study, um, whose predictions we, we, we try to understand. And in particular, we, we had a, a, a recent uh, preprint that is currently under review, where we try to expand a bit on some of the predictions of, of this theory um, to try and figure out whether it can help us understand what it is like to be in a different kind of consciousness than our own. Um, whether that be some who, most of what we focus on in, is um, someone who is undergoing a psychedelic experience, um, but also potentially other kinds of, of consciousness other kinds of systems. Of course, all of this, all, all, of, all of this idea depends on integrated information theory being, in some sense, true or close. At least some of its assumptions being close to the truth. Um, we don't know if that is the case. There is currently a lot of ongoing investigation um, on this in terms of, for instance, what is called an adversarial collaboration between different theories of consciousness, including IIT. So, trying to figure out. What are the predictions that can determine whether the theory will bear out or not? And I think this is very promising, and, and I'm really excited to see what comes out of that. But yes, so to answer your question, there are 
different ways that we don't know. And that's it for another long edition of Lefteris Ask Science. You can find all the information about what we discussed with Andrea Lupi, as well as information about him and his other interests in the links in the description of the show. Thank you for staying until the end of the podcast, and also thank you for the questions that you asked in the Facebook group. If you want to find out more about future episodes and ask questions to the academics, head over on Facebook and look for Lefteris Ask Science. Another easy way you can support me is by just sharing this episode with a friend. I really, really appreciate it. Until we meet again, take care, keep learning, and as always, be kind.